Well, I know what you're thinking this morning after hearing that text. What was that about? (laughs) Nothing quite says, thank you for showing up to church on this bone-chilling Sunday morning. Like jumping into the midst of a complicated ancient text that's discussing complicated global politics from the 8th century, which is about 800 years from the birth of Jesus. Why would we read this text on this day during this season? There's really no real easy way to explain what is going on in this text, so we're just going to jump in for a moment. Ahaz, the main character of this text, is a king. He's the king of Judah. This time in Israel's history, there's actually two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. They've been divided, and Ahaz is the king of the south, and Judah is Bethlehem in the capital, Jerusalem. The temple is in Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, well, they're a little angry at Judah. Judah didn't have their back during a recent military conflict. And so Israel, who's a bigger nation than Judah, but still small, makes an alliance with the evil kingdom of Aram, otherwise known later as Syria. And they plan to invade Judah. Ahaz hears this and he becomes scared. The prophet comes to him to deliver a word of hope, a word of assurance to him. That God is not going to abandon Judah. God's been with Judah since the beginning. God's going to be with Judah throughout it. But Ahaz doubts God's provision. And that's when our text picks up in the middle of this conversation. Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz. And he tells Ahaz to ask God for a sign. If you don't believe it's going to happen, well, ask God to show you a sign. A sign that could be as high as heaven or as low as the depths of Sheol, the very bottom pits of the earth. And this offer is stunning for it's as if God is offering Ahaz a limitless show of power. And Ahaz's response is to quote the book of Leviticus. Oh, I will not put the Lord, my God, to the test. And it seems like the right pious answer. Don't test God. But it's the wrong answer. Ahaz refuses God's sign, but in doing so, he refuses God's help. And the book of Isaiah doesn't go into details about what happens next. Isaiah's audience knew it all too well. Ahaz goes looking for some more help. He finds the king of Assyria. His name is Tiglath-Pilzer. Tiglath-Pilzer. Now that just sounds like an evil dude, doesn't it? King Tiglath-Pilzer. You know it can't be good. He gives Tiglath-Pilzer all the gold from the temple, all the gold from his palaces as a bribe for Assyria's protection. The mouse contracting with the cat for security. And it's, it's a decision that will ultimately be detrimental to Judah. Isaiah warns the king one verse before our reading and tells him, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But the king cannot trust in his faith. The power of Assyria is too great, too great of a temptation. And so he ends up bribing, selling his soul to the devil, and paying mightily for his lack of faith. Now, that's a lot of ancient politics to wade through on a cold December morning, but if we make it through, we might begin to see the answer to that other question. Why read this text in Advent? Now, of course, there is that mention of Emmanuel, but other than that, why? The king didn't want a sign, but Isaiah says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Here's your sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Look, the young woman is with child, he says, and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. 
And when we hear that, we cannot help but hear in these words echoes of the Christmas story. That story from Matthew that Marty referenced this morning that Matthew tells us from the perspective of Joseph. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way when his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to expose her to public grace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when they had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what had been spoken through the Lord by the prophet. And here it is. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Of course, he was named Jesus, not Emmanuel. But the point is not the name. The point is what the name means. That in the birth of this child, both in the day of Isaiah and the day of Mary and Joseph, that God is with them. It's a sign of God's presence. In Matthew's day and even for us today, it's a promise that this Christ child is doing something new among us. That Emmanuel means that God will not leave us. But is that promise enough? For King Ahaz, it was not enough. When the powers of the world are mounting up against you, how hard it is to trust in God's promise that God will be with us. When the sign is a baby, how easy it is to miss God's sign altogether. It's just too simple, too ordinary. I'll admit it's hard to believe the story. We celebrate this time of year. We hear it so much, and yet it's a tough one to believe. Not so much the historical details of it all, a virgin conceiving angels and dreams and a star, though for some of us those details trip us up. But what's really hard to believe is that this is the way God works. This is how God chooses to work in the world. Not in grand acts of power, not through military alliances or strong men or power or prestige, but when God comes into the world, it's through ordinary acts of being human, through conception and birth, through moms and babies, through ordinary people who wake up to dreams of God being born within them. This is how God enters the world. Every time in Isaiah's day, in Ahaz's time, in Mary and Joseph's day, and even in our day and time. Now, what does all this have to do with what I call the sermon? The sermon's called The Community Table, as David mentioned earlier. It refers to a special Sunday that we're having the beginning of the year, January 8th, and we interrupt this sermon for a public service announcement. We began Advent with such an announcement. If you remember, uh, we had two stunning skits from our outreach committee. We saw Don Darnell's debut as a TV cameraman. I heard he's already submitted application to KCCI, and Chris Ludlow's looking it over as we speak. We met Betsy and Becky, or was it Bessie? I forget. And, and then later there was Hilda and the always attractive Fred Carson. Fred, wave your hand, Fred. There we go. Now, if you missed those skits, you missed a little fun. But I hope you don't miss the point of the skits. They introduced us to what I believe is an important day in the life of our church. That on Sunday, January 8th, we're going to start off the new year, that second Sunday of the new year, to devote our church service to conversation, to small group 
conversations with one another. We're going to have a brief worship service right in here, and then we're going to leave. The adults are going to spread out. The kids have a special act. It's on the back of the bulletin. Dynamite Dan and, or Debbie Duwop and Dynamite Dan, uh, local Norwalk, uh, uh, silly songs act for kids. Uh, so kids are going to come, and they're going to say, we can't miss this, Mom and Dad. you got to come, too. And then Mom and Dad show up as well. See, see we're thinking through this. But we're going to break out in small groups all around the church to have conversations. And we call it the community table because, well, we're going to gather in a circle. And there'll be a table in the middle. On the table, we'll have our communion that we'll share together in those small groups. But more than that, it will be a table discussion, conversations, intentional conversations about what's going on in our lives, about what's happening in our community around us. What are the issues or concerns that may be keeping us up at night? What are our hopes and dreams for this community and for our future? And our goal is to listen to one another and through these conversations to see what common themes may emerge, to begin to strategize as a church how we can take the conversation out of the church and talk to more people and then begin to address these issues that keep arising, these hopes and dreams, these concerns within our community and act on them. And who knows what we'll hear. Maybe we'll hear some stories, as I've already heard, about the need for more affordable housing in Norwalk, that someone's struggling to make a house payment or rent or to find adequate senior living when the time comes. Or maybe it's the dream of a senior center in Norwalk or an after-school program or concerns with the rising cost of health care, the lack of mental health care for our friends and family. Maybe it's a dream of more support services for our students, even more than we already have. Maybe it's a concern with debt or lack of job opportunities. Whatever it will be, it will come from us, from our story, the sharing of our life together. And as we share these stories, we will learn again that we are not alone, that the people of God are with us. So many of us struggle in private, and yet here we are. The people of God. God is with us through this fellowship. Now, our goal is to talk to at least 200 people. What would happen if we heard from 200 people their concerns, their hopes, and dreams? What difference could we make as the church? Now, it sounds simple, really. Conversations in a small group. What could that do? So ordinary. Sharing our lives together. But it is. This is how God works. Through ordinary things, through conversations among people in a church. Now, by the way, our text this morning from Isaiah, Isaiah never lets on who this woman and this child is. All he says is there will be a young woman and she will have a child. Now, the Gospels tell us, as we read, that Isaiah is pointing to Jesus' birth. But I think Isaiah leaves it a little ambiguous because he's pointing to other things as well. Maybe it's a woman and a baby in his very day. Maybe he's pointing to you and to me, to all of us, that the sign of God's presence is within us today, that all of us, the people of God, we can be the vessels through which God enters the world, that we can make Emmanuel happen. During the Advent season, we pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel. But the prophet reminds us that Emmanuel is coming, that Emmanuel is right here. God is with us. And when church family gathers to worship, to break bread, to share in a cup, God is with us. When we gather around community tables, as we will do on the 8th, and share our lives and our hopes and dreams, God is with us. Whenever we come together, whenever we go out from this place and go and be the hands and feet of God, God is with us. 
as we make our world into the community that God dreams it can be, as we live lives of hope and peace and joy and love, we become the very hope we wait for. We become God's presence in the world. So you want a sign from God, a sign that God will be with you. Just look all around you. The signs are everywhere. The ordinary and everyday lives of the people of God, through us, God is coming into the world. May we believe that today. God is with us. God is in us. Emmanuel, amen.